The date is the 8th of June, mm-hmm. 2018. Robbie Gordon and I are here on the screen porch of my house at the farm. Robbie's been here now for a week and two days, and we'll be here for another seven or so before going back to Hawaii. And I'm going I'm to interview Robbie about his... Life and Times. He's six. Oh, 66, are you? No, I'm 72. Oh, 72. How'd I get You're that way wrong? Off. <laughs> <laughs> I was way off. All way right. Off. Robbie is 72. Yep, the last count. And uh, makes his home permanently now in Hawaii. All right, let's begin. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to hear about your early childhood. For example, of the four siblings, where did you stack up? Well, I want to begin with a statement of my own. Sure enough. Okay. This is not a statement directed only at you. This is a prayer. I want to make a prayer. Thank you, Great Spirit, for this day, for this good way of life you've given me to live. Thank you for the experiences of my life and for the opportunity to share them with people in a way that I hope will benefit the people in some way. Great Spirit, I ask you to guide my thoughts and my words as I speak these words and that they may be useful to all my relatives. Amen. Okay, Mm -hmm. go ahead now. What did you want to know about? Let's begin at the beginning. Where were you born? Pittsburgh, PA, Steel City. My parents were in the iron and steel business. Mom used to iron and dad would steal. That's a Pittsburgh joke. You're supposed to laugh. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, the Three Rivers, the Golden Triangle, where the Monongahela and the Allegheny form the Ohio, the beautiful river. It's where my mother's family was centered. Dad's family was from Central PA. I met because my two grandfathers were friends at Princeton, and one of them sent his son to the big city of Pittsburgh to meet his old friend and get a job and uh, that's where my mom lived and my dad showed up at the door the country bumpkin from Chambersburg anyway that's how my parents met and I was their fourth child born in 45 dad didn't go to the war because he had an essential job he was the chief freight dispatcher for the Pennsylvania Railroad Now, remember, this was Pittsburgh, and this was World War II days. There were millions and millions of armaments, tanks, shells, bombs, guns, armor plate, God knows what, going from the steel mills of Pittsburgh to New York, especially, where they were shipped overseas. And this was Dad's job, was to know. Dad knew every whistle stop on the Pennsylvania Railroad. He could quote you the... (laughs) from the schedule if you wanted to hear it. He knew every county in Pennsylvania too. He had this wonderful mind and he combined with uh, a jovial disposition. It got him a long way. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so uh, I was born just after the war. Grew up the army, I mean not the army, but the, the railroad kept moving dad around. So I went to three or four different schools. 
I was moved during my life. My brother Dave, my oldest brother, went to 10 different schools because of the moving around. Dad finally quit because of this railroad moving him around. But I lived in, let me see, Nashville, Baltimore, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Chicago suburbs, Philadelphia suburbs, Ardmore, uh, uh, and finally Pittsburgh. Wow. So, all but all by the age of what? How old were you? Uh, when we finally, when he quit and to settle down in Pittsburgh, I was nine and a half, ten, I think. Wow. So uh, then I went to a school in Pittsburgh for four years. And then to prep school at Exeter for four years, and then to Princeton for four years. All of those three schools were all male. Mm -hmm. So I never had any girls in my classes after the fourth grade. And because of the moving around, uh, every year or two, we get I got torn away from my friends, and so did my siblings which was quite painful for us. Mm -hmm. And being the new kid, and always the smallest kid in the class, always, and generally the best grades in the class too, it was uh, hard for me. I'm, I was somewhat shy in those days, and maybe severely shy. Didn't make friends easily. So it was kind of hard moving around all those times. Did but you it, get picked on in school? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got beat up in Grand Rapids. That's the last time I remember it. Against the, backed against the iron fence and punched a few times by the bad kids. I was in, the, what, first, second grade? Second grade, I guess. That was the time when I was on the school bus one of the first days in the new school, and the bigger kids came by. I said, who are you? And I said, oh, I'm Robbie. And they said, what grade are you in? I said, I'm in second grade. They said, you don't look like you're in second grade. And I said, well, ask me a second grade question. <laughs> that shut him up. I told the story to my mom when I got home, and she laughed and laughed and retold it to me. I thought, come, I remember it. <laughs> ask me a second grade <laughs> question. It still, was still one of our family sayings for many years. <laughs> What else do you want to know about my childhood or anything? In the uh, well, you said that you, you never went to school with any girls. Never. Were After your parents, grade. either your parents, church going that you might have met girls in church? Well, uh, uh, I, we were church going. We went to Episcopal Church, and uh, it was the Episcopal Church that was related to the school. St. Edmund's Academy was the school. And it had the Redeemer Church right there. So there weren't any girls there either. It was oh. all St. Edmund's students. Mm -hmm. They picked me to portray the saint in their annual in their annual pageant, passion play. And I guess I was the most nearly saint-like of the kids in my class. I was a good kid, kind of a goody two-shoes kind mm -hmm. of a kid, teacher's pet. Mm -hmm. But it, it felt right to me, and I was in love with learning. Mm -hmm. I loved books, and I just loved, I was the head of the science club and stuff like that. I was pretty nerdy, I guess, but there was only 14 guys in my class, 
It's a fairly small school. So I, uh, I would help the guys with their homework quite freely, anybody that wanted help. So I was relatively popular, somewhat mm -hmm. popular, anyway. And I had a couple of friends like Tom Rod. It was really tight. And uh, You were the only one of the four siblings to go to Princeton, although yeah, your right. dad had gone there and his dad? Or? My dad didn't go there. No? But his only brother went there. All my mother's brothers went there. Oh. Both my grandfathers went there. Uh -huh. Dad didn't get to go because the Gordon family ran out of money. Mm -hmm. And they only had enough money to send one son to Princeton, and that was Dad's brother, mm -hmm. Bob. So Bob got to go to Princeton and graduated second in his class, and Dad had to drop out of Exeter and go to Chambersburg High School. He didn't get to finish Exeter either. He loved it there. He had the same Latin teacher I had there <laughs> yeah. 30 years later. <laughs> That's crazy. And he, he and I could talk about the dormitories at Exeter and stuff, but our experiences were way different. I was a lot shyer than Dad was, I guess. I didn't have many friends, didn't enjoy myself very much, very homesick at Exeter. Did you start smoking pot at Exeter or Princeton? No, at Princeton. Uh -huh. It was after my freshman year, actually. Who turned you on? A fellow named Bill Reed, who still lives two miles from where I settled in New Mexico. My brother Dave was the one that smoked pot, and I, I asked him to turn me on. But I'll never forget the scene, because it was me and Dave and Johnny, the brother in between. Dave and Johnny didn't get along too well. Johnny was sort of, at the time, kind of a juvenile delinquent type. He had a, a voice. He had a bunch of boys that were followed him around, and they called themselves a gang, the King Cobras. They had they had leather jackets. They didn't have motorcycles. Anyway, so I'm in the. It was Christmas time, and we we're all home from our various schools, and, and I'm in the living room in front of the gas fireplace there with Dave and Johnny, and I'm saying to Dave, you know, how about this 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 marijuana you've been talking about? Could could you give me some of that? And before he could say anything, my brother John jumped up out of his seat, pulled out a switchblade knife, and stuck it up to Dave's throat and pushed the button. And there was a blade at Dave's throat. And Johnny said, you're not turning my little brother onto that stuff. Wow. I was so shook, I went out of the room and went to the back. I'm sure. I don't know what they said to one another, but I was shook. And I did not ask Dave. How old were you then? You were in college. Yeah. yeah. Were you 18? I, I was 18, I guess. Yeah. Well, your your brother John was not aware that at 18 you're allowed to do what you want. Well, this is this is another era. Yeah. Pot was not uh, too well known then. That's obviously, Johnny didn't know what it This did. was the 60s? This was 60. Two or three, let me see. I might have been even 64. It was my freshman year at Princeton, it seems to me. And I think it was Christmas vacation that we were all home together. But uh, 
a few months later, somehow, uh, Dave had this friend named Bill Reed. Although my mother's name is Reed, he's not a close connection. He claims he's here. Anyway, this guy, Bill Reed, uh, sold me a nickel bag of pot, $5 worth. A little teeny matchbox full of it. And showed me how to roll joints with zigzag, you know, with uh, bamboo brand papers. Mm -hmm. Showed me how to roll joints and he gave me a little bit of pot. We smoked a joint and mom and dad were out of the house. We smoked it downstairs in the in the basement where the furnace was because we figured it wouldn't, the smell wouldn't. Then we went up to the kitchen. He says, I just looked at the light bulb in the ceiling and laughed and talked about mathematical curves and stuff that I was seeing in the light. Who were you talking to? Bill Reed. Oh. And uh, it was just a week or two later that I got on the ore boat for that trip for my first job. Mm -hmm. I had that pot. I'd only smoked one joint when I got on the ore boat. Mm. And I started, my roommate on the ore boat was a, a kid my age who was much more experienced. He, I said, do you want to come and smoke some pot with me? He said, no, I prefer these. And he showed me a handful of little white crosses. That is amphetamines, dexedrines. Mm. He said, I prefer these. And I said, oh yeah, well, uh, I like, I got this pot, uh, where should I smoke it? You got any, he says, yeah, I'll tell you, go back to the fantail, go back to the back of the boat. That's where the, the engines are, nobody will see you. The, the smoke will get carried off, you know, we were going full speed down the Detroit River, I think, at the time, at night. So I go back to the back, and sure enough, the engines are thrumbling and, and watching the, the, uh, the incredible wake and seeing the lights go by on either shore of the Detroit River, and I'm smoking this joint. And man, I'm just getting really high. Just kind of have to hold on to the railing. <laughs> Whoa, getting back to, the room, to my room, my little cabin. I was really hoping I didn't run into any of the crew, but I didn't. Got back there and just whoosh, kind of fell into my bed and listened to the engine throbbing. <laughs> Ooh, what a place and time it was. So that was how I got turned on. Wasn't that your second experience with pot? Yeah. Yeah. The first was with the, the joint in the basement, <coughs> uh -huh. sitting in the kitchen and looking at the light bulb and laughing, mm -hmm. talking mathematical equations. Mm -hmm. And you've told me that you lost that job pretty soon after. Yeah, I got fired after 16 days on the job. Two round trips from Cleveland to Duluth and back twice. But I, uh, I got fired by the old Navy man. I was working in the galley. Mostly washing dishes and setting tables and waiting on the crew. The crew mm -hmm. of about 35, all covered with red iron dust all the time. Everything was covered with red iron ore. You had to sweep everything all the time. Uh -huh. Furthermore, you had to go around with a Phillips head screwdriver in our cabin and other places every night because the vibration of the engines worked the screws loose. All <laughs> together. Oh, Believe it or not, you'd pull a, open a drawer from the built-in storage underneath the bunk, and the drawer would fall out because all the screws had come out overnight. <laughs> it was weird. We, I was, you know, being new crew member, I got the 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 spot right over the engines. That was, that's uh -huh. where my, and them engines, sheesh, they were huge. I only went to the engine room one time. It's scary, man. Whoa. What's the fuel? That... Oil. Oil. Huh? Oil. There were oil turbine. Uh -huh. Engines, I guess. Yeah. yeah. 
That, it was that, the Shenango Two was the name of the boat, and it was seven hundred and ten feet long, and seventy-five feet wide. Wow! The most exciting thing was watching it go into the Sioux Lock. The mm. locks at the Superior, and to get into Lake Superior, you have to go through these locks. Yeah. The biggest lock there was eight hundred feet long, and eighty feet wide. So our boat is 710 feet long and 75 feet wide. So there was room at bow and stern, but on either side, there's only two and a half feet of room. Wow. <laughs> and when we're going down, we're loaded. When we're going up, we're empty. But going down the lakes, the second time I went through these locks, we were way low in the water and immense, immense momentum. And they, they put a special pilot on to go through the locks, and slowly, slowly, we ease into that lock. And I'm watching the, the side of the boat and the side of the lock, and they're, like, varying from a foot to a foot and a half, you know. I'm thinking, if we touch, there's going to be a shower of sparks and all kinds of stuff, but we never touched on either oh. side. Those guys were good. Yeah. And finally, they get to where the, they can throw the hawsers. took two guys to throw the hawser and two on shore to put the loop over the big, big steel things that are set there. And then all the winches pull the things tight. And then and only then can they relax and turn the engines off oh. and go up or down in the lock, as the case may be. But that was amazing. Everything about the technology was so intoxicating. Big machines, like trains and all. My dad loved them. I loved them. So I bought into By that, of course, you mean steam locomotives? Yeah. And diesel. Oh. Steam in the early days. Yeah. Dad was sort of there for the transition from steam to diesel. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We had a big picture of of a steam locomotive and a diesel locomotive on the wall. There are these calendars the Pennsylvania Railroad put out every year, and Dad got, and they had this wonderful paintings, each of them, artwork, and Dad got the originals of the paintings, or some of them, mm-hmm. to put up on the wall. I had one in my bedroom. Mm-hmm. I gave it away not long before I left New Mexico. To yeah. Railroad buff, a woman that I know, Amy. We're going to do this interview in segments before we continue. Um, we've gotten Robbie now up to, uh, oh, let's say, his Princeton education, and we'll resume. Okay, here we go. This is part two, and the date is still June the 8th, I think, 2018. So uh, before I ask you, Robbie, Specifically about your time at Princeton, I wanted to ask, when you were growing up in elementary school and like, did you play any instrument? No. None at all? None at all. You said you had a grand piano in your home. We had a baby grand piano in the living room. Very rarely, mom would would pick out something with one finger, like a melody on it. I can't even remember when she played it. And uh, now I was the youngest of four, and all the other three had piano lessons. But they all hated the lessons. And by the time it got around to me, Mom gave up trying, so she didn't try to give me piano lessons. 
and I really wish I had had piano lessons, but I didn't, so that's the way it goes. However, I did go to St. Edmund's Academy, 5th through 8th grade, and the headmaster, Mr. Robert Izod, was a fine musician. He played the organ and the piano. He played the organ in the affiliated Episcopal Church, and he taught every student how to sing. We entirely sang out of the Episcopal hymn book. But we uh, were looking at the sheet music written down as he would teach us how to sing, including the vocal exercises and how to open your mouth and enunciate, all kinds of stuff. And uh, we would, uh, he, 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 what was I saying? Well, anyway, he, he put us through our paces and, and we learned a lot of hymns that way too, of course. But I was looking at the sheet music, so while I'm singing, I'm uh, sort of absorbing something about musical notation, you understand? Yeah. A mm -hmm. partial understanding of musical notation. He didn't yeah. give us much specific on mm -hmm. that, but uh, we figured it out. He might have given us a little hints. I can't remember, but mostly it was about how it was vocal, and which was kind of useful to me, I realized. Mm -hmm. Tom Rod was also there, my buddy, who, whose name will recur throughout this. He was at St. Edmund's? Yeah. Okay. We were sort of rivals, not really. I mean, he was, I, I had the best grades in the class, but he was right behind me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and anyway, but I hated competition, and it wasn't about getting the best grades uh -huh. for me. Anyway, what else do you want to know? Well, then you went to Princeton, and you had still Exeter, had no music. Exeter in Oh, Exeter comes next. Okay. I, uh, High school at Exeter. At, uh, yeah boarding school, uh, high school years, 700 miles from home, off in the woods of New, Eng of New England, of New, New Hampshire. And uh, I never took any band or any instruments there at all, or any classes in music. However, I did acquire the mandolin by then. Uh, trying to remember which year it was, but I guess it was... It must have been 62. Yeah, must have been. Anyway, junior year in high school, I saw a movie called Never on Sunday. Oh, yeah. A wonderful movie. I remember. About a prostitute uh, with oh. a heart of gold and how she organizes the girls to, uh, to get rid of their exploiters and their big heroes in the town. And wonderful story. Great music, anyway. Yeah. And, and the music in it really captivated me to the extent that I wanted to play it. Now, it turns out they were playing bazookies and ouds or something like that. I haven't seen the movie in all these years, again. But they weren't playing exactly mandolins, but they were close to mandolins, as it turned out. And about this time, I was studying Russian. I started Russian just after I got my first mandolin in 63. That was the first time they offered it at Exeter. I got in on the first year. I was really tired of Latin by then. I'll bet. Five years, now. Five years. And two, yeah. two of them with the same Mr. Hatch, whom I could not stand. Maybe Anyway, so I, uh, I was encountering Russian and Russian music through a record called Songs of a Russian Gypsy by Theodore Bikel. Mm -hmm. who is a well-known actor as well. 
he was in uh, The Sound of Music, for instance. Mm -hmm. But uh, his music, especially of Russian gypsy music, really captivated me to the extent that... Uh, and then my a friend of my sister's brother's named Sarah Davis said, I've got this old mandolin in a closet that my father used to have here, and she gave it to me. And somehow she or I or somebody found this guy named Mr. True, who lived three blocks away from my house, was an Italian guy whose business was a mattress factory, but his true love was musical instruments, and he made violins mm. and sold them to schools around the Pittsburgh School District. And, his, and he also made guitars. And I, he took me down into his basement when I showed him the pathetic excuse for a mandolin that I had. And anyway, he, he offered to and did repair that mandolin. It turned out the mandolin was his true love. He was Italian. Mm. He was about my size, a small fellow. And he was a bit crippled up with arthritis. Couldn't play as well as he used to. But he told me many stories about the mandolin. He said that there were so many Italian mandolin players. They were all the barbers in New York. He said when the day the mandolin orchestra rehearsed, you couldn't get a haircut in Manhattan. <laughs> but in any case, he taught me how to play the mandolin and Mr. True in a, in a series of five or six lessons probably over a period of weeks. How I ever found this guy, I do not know to this day. And how kind he was and how much he loved the mandolin. Mm. He had one down there in pieces, which I have never seen the likes of. He had said he'd been trying to repair it for a year. It was made in Venice, and each of the round back slots was fluted like a column. You know, it was oh carved, gosh. so it was thinner in the middle than at the edges. Oh and in between each two of them was a little strip of ebony. So here's this mahogany fluted and then ebony, mahogany, ebony, mahogany, ebony, all the way across the back. It, you picked it up, it was light as a feather. It, it weighed about a quarter of what my Gibson weighs. And I thought, what does this sound like? He says, well, I'm still working on it. But the man loved musical instruments. So he introduced me to the mandolin. And I, having already seen Never on Sunday and begun to hear Russian music, and I acquired a balalaika about this time soon. So the, somebody gave me a balalaika, the Russian national instrument. It wasn't nearly as interesting to me as the, as the mandolin, however. Mm -hmm. But I had it. Mm -hmm. So here I am with a, a, a mandolin and a balalaika, and I'm going to Exeter studying Russian. Well, uh, that's how I got started on playing music. The whole old time and bluegrass and Irish, that all came later. Mm -hmm. All came later for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how much opportunity did you have at, at Princeton to play music? Again, I didn't take any classes in it, but I had friends, and we had a Russian band, mm -hmm. six members, two mandolins, two balalaikas, a guitar, and an accordion. Our accordion player, Alex Zarchnyak, <laughs> Zarchnyak, which means beyond the river, and it's a Cossack name, from the Zaporozhye of Taras Bulba fame. Anyway, he was from an old, old Russian family, in other words. That's our accordion player, Alex. He was a charming fellow, and he did a lot of our arranging of our music. The leader of the band was 
Alex, what was his name? I got Paul, Pavel Pavlovich de Radzianko the fourth. Paul Radzianko, who was from a family. He said his grandfather or great-grandfather had been the president of the Duma during the revolution. The Duma is the Russian parliament. Mm-hmm. President of the Duma. And, he's, and I found out that he was known as Fat Radzianko, and everybody thought he was useless. <laughs> but this was Paul's great-grandfather. This guy grew up on an estate in Connecticut, Paul Radzianko did, speaking French, Russian, and English in that order mm-hmm. from a very early age. Really proud guy. He was the leader of our band. And then there was the accordionist, Alex, who did most of the arranging. And my buddy, Tom Talenko, one of the identical twins I roomed with, mm-hmm. who played mandolin. He was the second mandolin. I was the first mandolin. And then we had two balalaika players, Paul, the leader, and my friend Steve Kerr, who majored in Russian with me. And he played the, uh, a, a double-string balalaika, and he played rhythm mostly. And then we had a guitar player named Kelly, our Anglo, and, and uh, he just did backup guitar. Anyway, we had sophisticated arrangements. And we managed to meet some Russian, real Russians in New York City. The families of Alex and Paul were connected with the Russian-American community big time. And in those days, there were still many emigres that had left because of the revolution. And so uh, we met some real dinosaurs. We, we met some real czarist Russians, uh-huh. and it was an experience, and we played music for them and, and learned music from this band that had been emigrated since the 20s, and they still loved Russia and had a Russian tea house, which was loaded with white Russians, that is. Anyway, so we got to hang out with these crowds, both in D.C. and in New York. In New York, we were the entertainment for the czarist cavalry organization. This is in 1966, 40 years after the revolution. They still toasted the czar as if he were alive. Wow. Imperial Russian flag in the corner. Other oh. corners got an American flag. Oh, my. What dinosaurs. Wow. But I must admit, they liked us. <laughs> we had fancy satin uniforms. Mine was powder blue. Fancy tailored by a tailor in the Lower East Side. How long did this band uh, play together? All the way through Princeton, three years, three or four. I guess we didn't get together till sophomore year. Yeah, probably, in my case, sophomore year. Mm -hmm. So three years anyway. And how many of the boys in the band were Russian majors like you? Me and Steve Kerr. Just two of you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then two others were ethnically Russian. Alex Zarichniak, the accordion player and Paul Radzianko. Paul, mm. do Radzianko. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> he, had, he had such snobbish airs, but we were able to give him a hard time about it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so those two were Russian. And then there was Tom Talenko, who wasn't studying Russian, but was of Serbian or something. He was into history. And and Kelly, I don't, I don't even know if Kelly was studying Russian. I think he was. Anyway. You came, went to Russia. Not with those guys. I went with my sister. Oh. I've been to Russia twice, 66 and 89. Yeah. And then 66 while I was... Was with Eleanor. Eleanor. And 89 was with Patch Patch Adams. I see. And 25 others. Uh Yeah, that's two different trips. Yeah. The the, the 89 trip I've written up extensively, a 22-page journal that I Mm -hmm. kept. Good. And I've got that all typed up. 
And, uh, and where see. might that be found? Where do you keep well, it? Well, I, I got one copy of it in, that I know about. I had, I've, I've sent out over 30 copies of it over the years, but everybody loses them. So I've got one that I know about, and I will copy Good. it up again. Yeah, um, that sounded amazing, and we'll get to that. But right now, we are getting you out of Princeton University. So four years later... A Russian major. All you want to know is the music. Well, I'm telling you the music, but it was not a, the biggest part of my life in yeah. any sense. Yeah. Not at that time. Later, it became so. You graduated a major in Russian. What was your minor? Linguistics. Linguistics. Tell me about what linguistics entailed. Well, it entailed the... Uh, I, I, I quickly realized that language is the most complicated and mysterious of human creations. We are totally unaware of what we're doing when we produce language, you know. I'll bet you don't know what your tongue is doing to form an ooh as opposed to an, uh, an o. It's ooh and o. Do you know what your tongue is doing when you make the no, you see? I didn't either. Uh -huh. And, 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 and the, the, the grammar rules that you absorbed how can you apply them so rapidly? How can we do this? It's just unbelievably complicated. And the machines still haven't been able to do it after all this time, you know, not satisfactorily. In any case, so I took an introduction to linguistics course, and it was so fascinating. I, I got into it from taking an anthropology course. And the teacher of the anthropology course, also, linguistics is a part of anthropology after all. So I, I took then an introduction to linguistics, and then I went on to historical linguistics, how languages changed over time. And then I took a course in phonetics, what the tongue and lips are doing to make all these different sounds. Mm. Studied African and uh, Germanic and all kinds of different sounds. And then I took uh, a course in history of the English language, and that was utterly fascinating, and I was thoroughly well prepared for it by this time for my studies in other linguistics. And the English language is the most complex and strange of them all, it seems. Oh, boy. There's so many additions to it from all these different languages, from the Latin mm -hmm. and the Greek and the Germanic and the Celtic. Yeah. Very little of the Celtic, though. And the Romance languages? From Latin directly. <clears throat> Three different borrowings from Latin. And one from, one of them through French, the Norman borrowing. But there was an earlier borrowing when England was a colony of Rome for 400 years. Uh, it was a part of the Roman Empire. And so you might imagine it absorbed a lot of words. Most of them were military. All those places named Lancaster and Dorchester. Caster or Kester. Chester is derived from Castra, which is camp in Latin. So... Uh, that's some of the first borrowing. The second borrowing was the Norman borrowing when the Norman French came in, speaking French, although they were Vikings themselves, but they a bunch of bandits. <laughs> anyway, they took they conquered England and uh, under William the Conqueror, and so they were speaking their French, and uh, a lot of borrowings came into English from that. And the third borrowing was after that, just the um, the um, Educated people of England uh, thought it was fancier to uh, to make a Latin word. So a lot of the words we got are obfuscated, <laughs> ornatified. I mean, uh, 
Anglo-Saxon words generally have one or two syllables. Latin words have three or four. That's how you can spot them. And Greek. And a lot of these things were just, they're just made up. <laughs> mm. That was a borrowing. Anyway, languages, especially because of the, the way that we still don't understand how we can do it, you know? Uh, it, it's a mystery how we... Like, what I just said is a sentence that may never have been uttered before in the history of the human race, in spite of the fact that there's trillions of sentences possible. Mm -hmm. Anyway, don't you feel the fascination of languages yourself? Yeah, I do. You speak several, as I know. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I've always been interested in our little neighborhood of Pepper Pike, Ohio, suburb of Cleveland. Mm -hmm. uh, a family had a... A German girl visiting, and I remember how fascinated I was to go over and meet her and learn a word or two from her. Now, uh, graduation comes, and there you are getting your diploma. And didn't your teacher tell you something like what kind of job you could get with a major in Russian? Yeah, my advisor, Mrs. Berberova who was raised uh, emigre in Eastern Europe, mostly. Anyway, she said, well, Robert, you, you, uh, why are you uh, not going to graduate school? I said, well, Mrs. Berberova, I, uh, I really think I need to do something that I enjoy and fully can support. And she said, but look, you could be a, a, a professor of Russian or a translator, uh, and I said, well, I uh, I know, but I just remember looking out the window at the elms blowing in the breeze, just like I'm looking at the trees now. You see, I just wanted, this was 1967. And I had already been smoking pot and taking 1967? acid. Yeah. yeah. I was taking, I'd taken acid a number of times on campus. Timothy Leary had come to campus. And, uh -huh. and I had considered, plus I'd had all these courses in philosophy and world religion, Islam, Buddhism, and uh, history of world religions, et cetera, et cetera. And being raised, being raised uh, by devout but not pushy parents. My parents were truly very kindly. In any case, uh, I, uh, the world was a lot bigger than being a Russian professor, it seemed to me. In spite of the fact I was still fascinated by Russia, but it just, I didn't even know that there was a commune in my future. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what I thought, really. You know, mm -hmm. I really don't know what I was thinking at the time. So upon graduation and conversing with your advisor, you actually had no plans at all then. That's about right. I'm trying to think back to what my plan was then. And I just, you know, I just, I get, I'm drawing a blank. I'm just drawing a blank. I know I went up to Canada to the island with the family when we all went up there. And I'm just, I, I don't know what I was thinking. I was smoking pot. But, uh... Then I got that letter from my brother Dave, the only letter I think he ever wrote me. Huh. 
on toilet paper or paper towels, something brownish paper, in crayon, and he, as the crayons <laughs> wore down, he, he would switch to a different color. So, what were the exact words? Do you remember <laughs> Exact them? words. Don't remember? No, I'll have to make it up. But it was pretty brief. Hey, Robbie, we're getting a com commune together out here, me and Rick Klein. Uh, why don't you come on out and join us? So I wrote him back real quick and mailed it off to the post office in Beaumaris and said, yeah, save a place for me, Dave, but I have to deal with the draft first. I, my, my 2S deferment is up now, and I'm going to have to... Uh, uh, apply for conscientious objector status. I don't remember if I wrote him all that. I don't remember what I wrote him. I just yeah. said, I'll be out there. And I did. It only took three weeks for the draft board to decide that I was a CEO, which was, a, I didn't expect that. I was really blessed. But I did have really good letters of recommendation and, uh, some advice from the Quakers about how to fill out the forms from the Central Committee of the Quakers, the pacifists mm -hmm. that I knew of. Tom Rod was uh, either in jail or about to go to jail at the time for resisting the draft. He didn't finish college at that time. Mm -hmm. He went to Berea later on, which you may have heard of in Kentucky. I have. Did you know anything at all about New Buffalo when you packed all your Russian books and your you think when the possession? When you I didn't pack that year. I, I don't know when I. Oh, you myself. came back and got your things. Hell, I just went on a Greyhound. Oh. I got on the first one I could after I got the draft uh -huh. taken care of. What'd you tell your parents? I'm going to join Dave in a commune. You didn't know what it was. We didn't know it was named New Buffalo. We didn't know what it was. And just the several Pittsburghers involved. Did your parents know anything about communes? I don't know. Were None they aware the that there were communes in the late 60s? Hell no. They we didn't were, even we know. We were one of the first that we'd never heard of it. Went, no. yeah. I'm trying to remember if I'd ever heard of a commune at that time. Well, we'd heard of Tim Leary and, and what went on at the uh, in California. Yeah, sort of the Berkeley and, and the hate Ashbury scene, and I'd been there for a month. But uh, city communes existed, all right, shared houses and stuff. Mm -hmm. But there wasn't anything like what we created. There wasn't anything like it. And it's still, it's still our, our experience was somewhat unique. We had a closer relationship with the Native Americans than any other commune that I know of. Mm -hmm. It was a very intimate relationship that went both ways. We helped them also. And that was something very sacred and very wonderful about our mm -hmm. company. And that's why we named it the New Buffalo. The Buffalo is the provider, food, clothing, shelter, and a spiritual basis on the basis of relationship. The Buffalo and I are brothers, sisters. Mm -hmm. And they give their lives to us. So... We had no idea, I had no idea where I was going to, but I knew Dave was all right. I'd wanted to get together with Dave for a while. Like I told you, I asked him to turn me on to pot. Anyway, we so I, I got to know Dave pretty well. He had always avoided me. I, I was the little brother that 
you didn't like very much. I was too nerdy and, and academic for the rest of my time. Yeah. They were hardcore partiers, all of them. All of them leaders of groups of people. And me, I'm the shy little one that liked the Wait a minute, say, who was who they were hardcore Dave, partiers? Dave, Johnny, and Bibi, my three siblings. All three of them? All three of them. Oh, my. All three of them leaders of, of their own pack, you know. Uh, we just cream rises to the top. We just have strong personalities huh. and a lot of talents in my family. It's probably right. from the incest that my great grandfather committed. <laughs> well, you were a cousin, marrying your cousin can intensify certain characteristics. We have intensified characteristics from the Davison family, especially. So you were a somewhat pampered son, and there you landed and had to sleep in a teepee with Dave? Yeah, it's no problem. <laughs> what time of the year was it? It was July. Oh, well, that's lucky. No, it sure was. Sure was. We got the house built before the snow fly. July of 1967? The commune had been in existence for about maybe a month or less uh -huh. when I arrived. Yeah. Started around the solstice. They had a peyote meeting on the land and stuff. They still didn't have a building built. Of course, everybody was living in the teepees. We had a little camper that we could get into when it rained that most of us could fit into, and a couple of tarps and stuff over the cooking area. Uh -huh. And an outhouse, which wasn't screened, and half of us got hepatitis, myself included, later on. Yeah. Yeah. I got a staph infection. I wasn't used to living in without houses. Right. Yeah, but that's three years down the line from where you are. Mm -hmm. I came in 70, January. Yeah. So um, Rick Klein was there. living there at the time you came, yep. right? There wasn't anything there, no buildings of any kind. But Rick wasn't with Terry yet, was he? No, he was with Susanka, Susan, a woman named Susan who... We all thought it was a bit snooty and wasn't real popular with the rest of us. Can't remember much about her at this late date. What was your impression when you arrived at New Buffalo and stayed there? Did you throw in your lot, hook, line, and sinker? Oh, yeah. It, that was it. it felt good, felt like what you wanted I to do? I thought I'd live here the rest of my life. Yeah. Me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really, really felt part of it indeed. I think Larry felt the same way when he arrived at New Buffalo. He was in it for the long haul. In fact, he ended up being the person that stayed there longer than anyone else, yeah. from yeah. about 68 to 78. He was wonderfully loyal, all right. Well, New Buffalo was an amazing, amazingly wonderful place. Sure it was. I lived in communes five or so, maybe six, if you count a loose group up in Vermont, but... New Buffalo stands out among them all. It was the school that really taught me the most. Me too. So we're going I to take... a couple other communes too. One in West Virginia. And it's sort of a community in New Mexico, too. We're going to take another little break. Good morning. It's Robbie and Marilyn again, and this is the next day. This is June the... What is it, the 9th? I guess. We think it's the 9th of June in 2018. We're going to continue. Where we left it was Robbie was at New Buffalo making adobe bricks, 
and in, uh, enjoying being part of the crew and, and doing a man's work. So, um, what season of the year did you arrive at Buffalo, Robbie? Oh, it was must have been uh, early to mid-July. I've written up my uh, my arrival at New Buffalo and, and all my best New Buffalo stories in Mary's book, uh-huh. Utopia in New Buffalo, The Early Years, yeah. which is forthcoming. But uh, I recommend reading that to get a lot of my stories. Okay. But I will tell you this one, if you like, because my arrival, I was getting off a Greyhound, and Dave picked me up downtown Taos, and I... On the way up, looking at the mountains, my eyes refused to focus on anything that far away. I was raised in the east. I'd never been, except one brief time, west of the Mississippi at all. And the size of the mountains and the openness of the sky, literally my eyes couldn't focus on them. That was, and it was sort of sunset. They were really beautiful, but the mountains there turned reddish. Sangre de Cristo range. Anyway, and then the smell. The smell of the whole place was a mixture of sage and and cedar and pinon smoke. Uh, and there was also this dust everywhere in the air, which was starting to clog up my nose. But the, the amazing smell of the place... And then we're getting to New Buffalo, and by this time it's sort of getting dark. And Dave drove up the driveway, and I couldn't see anything man-made. All I saw was trees, and I'm just looking, and I see this strange flicker, flickering at two or three places on the hillside. This, This funny flickering like a candle. And when we got up closer, I saw one. I could see it was a shadow of a person. I said, oh, those are teepees. They were eerie looking to a person that had never seen them. It was wonderful realizing what was going on. And we had about 10 teepees at that time. All right. Um, Where was the light in the teepees coming from? Flashlights or surely they weren't burning? It was coming from a fire. Oh, they were building fires. Of course it was cool at night. They were cooking on them. We didn't have any buildings. Ah, yeah. We didn't have any buildings. And the communal kitchen didn't exist? They were using... uh, Yeah, it existed. But that doesn't matter. Yeah. We we were using... uh, Some people might have been getting their kids ready for bed and stuff. You know, I mean, there was was ten families there or more. Mm. Was English Jane there in that early day? I think so. Her and her son, Dougal. Ira and uh, Maureen? No, they weren't there at Not that yet. time. Huh. And Rick Klein was there. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Rick has told me that one of the reasons that he moved off of New Buffalo land was that people were hitting on him all the time for money because he had put up the money to buy the place and uh, he just wanted to uh, distance himself from the role of benefactor and philanthropist and the guy with the money to buy whatever was needed. And he did that by buying a piece of land up in Llama Mountain and moving up there. That's somewhat the way I remember it, but we had a more positive, from our side of the fence, 
I had a more positive attitude towards Rick than you're expressing. I, I didn't realize that he was trying to get away from being hit on because I never hit on him. Instead, I knew that he wanted to get out of the role of being benefactor and leader. And frankly, we all loved the guy. But on the other hand, we didn't want to have, most of us, shall we say, most of us most of the time didn't want to have a leader mm -hmm. or a benefactor. We already had the money. We knew how to spend it. We bought the two trucks. We bought the the, uh, the teepees and uh, building supplies. And anyway, so he did, I consider the best thing he ever did for the commune was to leave it because then we didn't have a leader. We we're all equal. Mm -hmm. Very, none of us have contributed a large amount of money to it. I don't have any idea what everybody contributed, mind you. Yeah. But we contributed what we had. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really worked that way. What year did Rick leave Buffalo? I don't know. You came in 67? Mm-hmm. Okay. Larry came in 68. And I'm not sure whether Rick was... You'll find all this in Mary's book. And frankly, I'd rather defer to her book for most questions okay. about New Buffalo. Sure. Can we go on in my life? Yes, I Because I, I contributed 60 pages of memoirs uh, to that book. And are you... Did you include falling out of the cottonwood tree? Of course. I yeah. call it a bad day. Every little in incident has a... Uh, there's the handsome stranger. That's my account of Dennis Hopper's visit. And there's, you know, I, it's all in there. Okay. I, I'd rather refer, defer to that. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, so... And she's got dates and places and times for every person coming and going. It's a very thorough book, Marilyn. Extremely but, thorough. Hmm? That's my plug for the book. Yeah. It's a good book. Let's get you Utopia. out of New Buffalo then. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, just about the time that you moved off New Buffalo, I arrived. Yeah. January of... 1970. We moved out of the neighborhood in June of 1970. Mm -hmm. We were living down on the Hondo Seco Road. Mm -hmm. How were you making a living when you were living down there? Uh, welfare. The state of New Mexico contributed. Uh -huh. uh, they uh, cut me off, though, because I had too much education after a matter of months. I forget how long it was. I'm not entirely sure how I made it across the country with the truck. The truck was given to me when I was in the hospital. Oh. A Princeton uh, classmate, Clayton Lewis, happened to be passing through the neighborhood. Uh -huh. This was, remember, just a few, a year or two, just a couple years after our graduation. Uh -huh. So Clayton visited me in the hospital where I was had the broken back. I was uh -huh. recovering. And he said he'd been working for IBM and... So he had some money, and he just handed me 200 bucks, and I used it to buy my first vehicle, truck. Yeah. That's the one I took to New to uh, New Buffalo and rebuilt the engine, and the one that Mary and I and Raven traveled east on. Mm -hmm. We traveled across the country three times in that truck. It wouldn't go over 45 miles wow. an hour. <laughs> Where was Raven born? At Embudo Hospital, as it was then. And were you a resident of Buffalo when she was born? No, you I was already... on Hondo Seco Road. Okay. Ever after I got out of the hospital around July or August of 69, I moved back to uh, the Hondo Seco Road. Uh, somehow, almost immediately, Mary helped find the rent from Harvey Mudd, find a place to rent, in other words. The yellow house, we called it. It was painted yellow. We had a happy time there. 
and then Raven was born that uh, that uh, fall, mm-hmm. and uh, she was a tiny baby in January, so we weren't getting out too much in the winter, you see. Yeah. So uh, by that time, I think I had finished rebuilding the truck, so I probably, I don't know, I can't remember exactly how many times I went up to Buffalo and stuff like that, you know. I Weren't was, you doing rehabilitation then for your oh, legs? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I was living at that house in Seco. I, I, I wasn't going downtown or nothing like that. Oh. Mary was a nurse, though, you see, almost a nurse. She dropped out of nursing school two weeks before finishing it. But she uh, she, she helped uh, me with my body, you know. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, she's nursing a small baby, and... And she did go to the doctor. I took her to the doctor numerous times. For instance, the doctor had her stop nursing because she was spotting of blood, according to him, after only four months of nursing, which I lamented, and she didn't like it much either. She thought Raven should have had more nursing, but the doctor said, you know, don't do it. So she obeyed doctor's orders. Mm-hmm. Her being an RN or almost an RN had a prejudice, this is my opinion, towards uh, accepting a, uh, established medical opinion. Like, for instance, wanting to have her baby in a hospital, whereas most of our friends, like, were having them at home. Yeah. But anyway, that's where Raven was born. On the 10th of November, 1969, somewhere around sunset, Mary and I disagree about the moment of birth because we can't remember too well the clock time. She was kind of busy at the time. Anyway, it was somewhere around, let's call it 6.49. Did the hospital allow you to be in the room? Yeah, I was holding her hand uh-huh. while she was in labor. Uh-huh. Had to have on a gown or something. But yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So you had a young family, and there it is, 1970. Yeah. And uh, you made a big decision to leave the area. Mm-hmm. And go where? Go to West Virginia to be with my friend Tom Rod mm. and his family. The decision was uh, largely because of Mary, because uh, there was trouble between the hippies and the Hispanics that year, big trouble. You were probably insulated from some of it at New Buffalo. The trouble was worse off of New Buffalo. Mm. Like hitchhiking down the road for a hippie was a dangerous thing to do in 1970. Mm. Maybe not in 1965 or 1973, but that was a bad year. Mm-hmm. And at one point, I was up at Buffalo fixing the truck, and a guy staggered into Mary's yard, our yard, bleeding from a knife wound. And it was not a serious wound. But she took him in and bandaged it up with her nursing skills and bandages and things. But she, he, the guy said he was a hippie. He said that he had been uh, a car full of uh, Hispanic dudes at, or truck or something. It stopped and they got out and beat him up instead mm. for no reason other than the way he looked. Yes. Well, that really flipped out Mary. Uh, it wasn't the only incident down at Celso's bar and grill, more or less. <laughs> uh, there was uh, several incidents with the hippies and the, and, the, and the Hispanics. Somebody's windshield got smashed. There was, a, I think, some hippies 
uh, beat up some Hispanics there one time who were about to beat up somebody else. Mm -hmm. I'm a little vague on some of the details, but the, the, the vibe was heavy. So the reason we left was largely because of that, but the place we went was to uh, West Virginia because Rod, Tom, and Judy, and it's their 50th <coughs> wedding anniversary probably today. Mm -hmm. In any case, they uh, they were living on Judy's fam family's large estate on the North River in a, a small river in eastern panhandle of West Virginia. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's so we all, four of us with our, well, six, Tom and Judy had a small baby named Ira. R Mary and I had a small child named Raven. In any case, all six of us lived in this old log cabin, which was quite old. There was also a big stone house on the property and a whole lot of other stuff. This was the Foster family estate, oh my. Stephen Foster's mm -hmm. family. Mm -hmm. And this is the estate which they probably owned way back then too, I would guess. Mm -hmm. The big house was a very fancy and gloomy sort of place. No one living in it? Correct. But parties occasionally and reunion, family reunions and things. Mm. It had a separate kitchen. Possibly it had slaves living in it. Uh, I'm not sure of that, but it was in West Virginia after all. It was in Virginia, you see. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know that, but it, it was built, but the kitchen was separate. That was a thing they did in slave times to keep that big house from getting too hot. But I'm rambling now to ask me another question. Yeah. So, uh, how long did you last living, all of all of you, in a, a log cabin before uh, you got your own place with Mary? It's rather painful for me to talk about that, so I'm going to give you an abbreviated account. I, it's painful to me. I, let's just say I had a dispute with Tom, and uh, one of us had to move out, and he moved out into an old farmhouse on the same property. After a few months, when I was able to, I moved out, and we didn't speak to each other for a year. Mm. I, I don't want to get into that, though. Okay. It's too painful. Mm -hmm. And you were still with Mary at the time? Yes, but only for about another year or so, and she left uh, in 72. And didn't go far, though, did she? You said she... That's right. She was... This part is painful, too. She, she left to be with my... Uh, best friend of sorts except for Tom, a guy named John Wharton, who was my partner in the firewood business. Mm -hmm. And uh, she and Raven, who was about three, uh, lived down the road in an old, old, old farmhouse about uh, five or six road miles away. And the music, at what point did you, you gather well, a musical circle up? In that area? Well, there was a couple musicians. No, they didn't move in yet. Uh, I played with Tom frequently, Tom Rod. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I uh, I was too busy taking uh, picking apples and selling firewood and keeping my life together to have a musical life. It was hard work there, and we didn't have any electric, and uh, money was very short. Neither I nor Tom was getting money from our wealthy families. I, I was not getting anything from my family. And that was fine on my part and on theirs. Mm -hmm. Dad and Mom knew that if, 
Well, when I did go into the hospital, they contributed something to the hospital bill. Mm-hmm. But uh, I didn't have anything to do with it. They voluntarily did that. Did you explain to your parents after the accident what had caused the accident? I don't remember. Mm -hmm. Let me think about that a little more. I think I did. I don't remember the conversation. Mm -hmm. yeah. Maybe Dave said something to them. At what point did you meet Neil and Barb and Janine and Robert? Can't remember. Mm -hmm. Completely lost in the midst of memory. But you, but Janine remembers Mary, so she had she met Mary. So they must have overlapped. Must have. The Longos. The well, you see, I moved away from West Virginia for a couple of years. In '72, after Mary left me in August, I got busted on Halloween night in a haunted house. Oh yeah. And had to leave the state. So that's when I left the state and went to. Pittsburgh for a year. Yeah. A year and a month. The year of 73. And worked in a tobacco shop. Yeah. yeah. Good job. And then in January of 74, I uh, took a Greyhound to California by way of Denver, where I could see my daughter for a few weeks, a few days. I went to Berkeley to live with my sister, January of 74, mm -hmm. the time of the Kahootek comet, if you remember that, a comet that didn't show up. In any case, that's I went to Berkeley in 74, spent a year and a half there, and then I moved back to West Virginia, back to a different part of West Virginia. Why did you return to West Virginia? Well, I was on good terms to live with Tom Rod and to, uh, to get land, to do what he was doing. He had bought land. Uh -huh. He was no longer living on the family estate. He was in the process of buying it in Greenbrier County. And that was far enough from Hampshire County where I'd been busted that I figured I wasn't going to be a notorious character. Plus, I didn't have many friends up there in Hampshire County. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the same. Down in, down in Greenbrier County and Pocahontas County, there were, as you know, uh, a lot of homesteaders. Mm -hmm. That's what we called ourselves. It was before the Rainbow family. or We were hippies, sort of, but we liked to call ourselves homesteaders. Mm -hmm. to emphasize our connection with the land, I guess. Mm -hmm. But anyway, you know, I had friends there, Charlie and Beth and Marty and uh, and uh, people whose names I can barely remember. And that's the area that Neil and Barb and Janine and Yes, and that's Robert right. Longo and we had these homesteaders gathering. gatherings every year yeah. there, and Neil and Barb were at those gatherings, mm -hmm. which often were at numerous locations, but often they were on the Greenbrier River. Mm -hmm. At a place called the Cat Hole, because the catfish. Anyway, mm -hmm. I'm rambling again, so ask me another question. Okay. Uh, at this point, Janine began to learn m many mandolin tunes from you. So, so many that she subsequently brought to me. I learned them in Berkeley. You learned them in Berkeley? Berkeley. Is that where, where you took Street up mandolin music. in earnest? That's where I played street music. Ah. Before that, remember at Princeton, I was playing in the Russian band. Yeah. And I could play the Never on Sunday, a Greek song. Uh -huh. And Eleanor and I had been to Greece, and I could play four or five Greek songs. Uh, and uh, I, uh, but, but when I went to Berkeley, uh, I started picking on the street corner. And I uh, just uh, attracted one musician friend after another, and I uh, learned a whole bunch of tunes. 
most of them by ear. Uh, all of them by ears now that I think about it. But I had some good teachers, uh, like this guy Nathan Spooner, who still sends me a letter now and then and a CD. Big, big, tall hippie, a few years older than me. Fine guitar player. Had a 12 string that only had nine strings, was the Takamini. And uh, he bust him and couldn't afford to replace him. His, his case was made of different pieces of canvas, stitched together crazy quilt style, and the strap was a bicycle inner too. <laughs> Nathan Spooner, long blonde hair, very Polish, Polish ancestry. <laughs> anyway, he was a good buddy, and he, he was the guy that said, you know, you can play chords, go ahead, play them. And I said, well, I don't know what they are. And he says, yes, you do. Listen to this song. And he'd play some simple song like this, Land is Your Land, or You Are My Sunshine, something really simple. He says, now look, can't you hear where it changes? And I said, yeah, I think it changes here. He says, look, there's only three chords, okay? I'm giving you a simple song. So it, just guess, okay? You know, if you're playing in C and it's changing, it's going to be either G or D, all right? So just hit one of them and see if it sounds right. And I said, well, you're right. And, and he wouldn't stop playing, you know, so to help me out, you know. We, did, we weren't stop and start. He was, he was a great teacher, you know, no nonsense, just laugh it all up, smoke another joint. And let's just, let's just, you'll learn to play chords, and by God, I did. And Slusswich, we had lots of friends. I mean, one musician after another got attracted to our whatever we had. And my sister was there, too, and me mm -hmm. and Nathan and Eleanor had a Russian band, of course, at my leading. And Nathan liked the Russian music because he was Polish, as I said. And uh, he wrote a really great song about his grandfather's history in Russia, too. Mm -hmm. A great, great song. Someday I'll play for you. But I don't have it here with me. Uh -huh. Anyway, uh, Nathan, he's a good friend. So Nathan and Eleanor and I had a Russian band where we got a gig in the La Bohem restaurant, which was <laughs> on the north. Uh, uh, it was Bancroft, I think, off of the campus. It was a Sunday gig. It was, I think it was 6 to 8 uh, p.m. on Sundays. And we'd show up and sit down. They'd give us a carafe of red wine. And uh, we'd play only Russian music. And uh, we had a repertoire of about 25 tunes that I, 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 I had taught them how to play. Mm -hmm. It was totally from what I'd learned. What was Eleanor playing? Mandolin. Mm -hmm. And uh, Nathan played guitar. And, uh, oh, we had a nice little gig. We had regular fans would come in. And we didn't make much money, but they did give us an excellent free meal after we mm -hmm. finished playing and drank some of the wine. We, uh, we had a great free meal. And uh, the, the restaurant changed its name. It, it was La Boheme. It had some other name. But uh, in any case, that was a good time. Plus, uh, me and Nathan Spooner and uh, a woman and her boyfriend formed a band. We called it Phoebe Snow. We called it the Erie Lackawanna String Band with Phoebe Snow, and our lead singer called herself Phoebe Snow. This is kind of irrelevant to anything, but this is just uh, how you, you want to know how I learned a lot of songs. Mm -hmm. Well, it was in these two bands, and there were other people I just met on the street that, that knew fiddle tunes. Where I learned all them fiddle tunes, it's kind of a puzzle to me at this late date, <laughs> how much I picked up. Uh, it's just a sponge. Uh -huh, yeah. Totally enjoying myself. Yeah. I remember one guy named Jody who was from Santa Cruz, where I've never been. He had very long, skinny fingers, and he played the whistle, lots of Irish tunes. And he also, he took my mandolin out of my hands, with my permission, and played one tune after another, like the window chair. 
tune that I've never seen anybody else play all these years. Fascinating tune. Another tune called The Halting March, which is a very few people seem to know the tune. Mm. But it's an excellent tune. I mean, I mean that's a judgment call. But he, like me, he's like me, you know, he doesn't just play every tune. It's just when you hear a tune you like, that you really like, it sticks in my head. Mm. And same way with him. So I like to learn five tunes from him, maybe, you know, and two from this guy. And it was almost all by ear. And then, yeah. I, well, then I started listening to the radio went later on in my life. I just kept listening to the Thistle and Shamrock uh -huh. and other programs, and I learned. And I would push the button on my little primitive recording device, yeah. and then I'd just play that scratchy old tape over and over again until I learned the song. Yeah. And I'd throw the tape away, basically. Uh -huh. And that's still the way I, I, I learned songs. All right. Well, thank you, Robbie. That's a bunch. Yes, it is. Yep. Two. 